Good morning. Actually, I want to begin this morning um, before, I, uh, before I start by showing a song. It's a song by Natalie Grant. And I want to preface my sermon with this because this is where we are headed. This is where we're going. And I want you to keep this song and the lyrics that you'll read in the forefront of your mind as we um, go through today's psalm. In the process, you can turn to Psalm 51, and that's where we'll be. And Joseph, you can go ahead and roll that song. Yeah. 
So last week we looked at Psalm 13 and we looked at how to walk through the hardships, the difficulties, and the struggles well. Our faith doesn't ignore the fact that we have problems and struggles and issues, and it's not blind to those things. And so the Psalms actually teach us how to walk through those things well, how to handle them well, and what to do with them. And so this morning we're going to take another look at a Psalm um, of David. This is one that we actually know the direct instance of what happened before David wrote this psalm. A lot of the ones we do not know exactly what was going on or what story they are tied back to. But Psalm 51, we know, um, is a time of David's life that he would um, like to regret. When you read the Bible, you find in 1 Samuel 13, 14, that God is looking to anoint a king for a man that is after God's own heart. That God is seeking someone that is going to have the the thoughts of God, the mind of God, and is going to walk out and rule as a king the way that God would. And so God has set out to find a king that is pursuing God's heart. And we know that David is anointed that king, that God finds his man in David. You've often heard that said of David, that he is a man after God's own heart. And that's one of the things that I always desire and I always strive for, because if that would be the set of me, I don't know that there would be a higher honor or thing that someone could tell me that I am a man after God's own heart. I often joke that if you gave me Samson's strength, Solomon's wisdom, Paul's preaching ability, David's heart, and uh, Saul's standing a foot taller and handsome, um, I would be the perfect Christian man. Um, but it amazes me about David that, when, um, that he was a man after God's own heart. Because if David were to, let's say, we were um, ready to hire a pastor and David were to hand in his application, um, and he looks great. He, you know, he's ruled the nation of Israel before. Uh, he started to gather the supplies to rebuild the temple. He had the largest army. He expanded the territory and the, um, the power of Israel. And if he were to apply for the church, we'd be like, oh, he looks like a pretty solid, a good candidate. Um, Let's just run a background check on him. You know, let's do that FBI background check. Let's make sure that he's safe to, um, to rule and to lead and make sure there's no uh, past. And so if you were to get that report back and you were to look at it and you were to scan it, you would come across a couple blips in David's record. You would get to a point in time where it says that he was standing... Um, I guess on the front porch of his own kingdom or his own castle, and he was looking out, and he saw a woman bathing. And he says, you know what? Send for her. I want her to be mine. Look at her. She's beautiful. I want that. Mind you, David's already a married man. Uh, in fact, he's already had children with another woman, or another, his wife. Uh, but he looks at that woman, Bathsheba, and says, you know what? I want her to be mine. And we'd go, ooh, all right. That's a red flag. Um, so David takes her, and... Uh, Unfortunately, Bathsheba ends up pregnant. So we say, all right, well, what does David do, and how does David respond to that? Does David, you know, handle that the right way? But we find out that David actually sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, who is out at battle fighting David's wars and David's battles. And he sends for Uriah and says, you know what, come home, be with your wife. Uh, maybe we can trick them into thinking that this is Uriah's baby. But Uriah actually has some integrity and some nobility, and he says, you know what, while my men are out fighting and they're out fighting battles, I'm not going to be here um, and enjoy spending time with my family and with my wife. He says, so he actually does not go home. And so David says, ooh, i got to do something about that. So he says, you know what, send Uriah to the front lines of the battlefield. So that way um, he is on the front lines and he's going to face conflict, and eventually we know that Uriah dies on the battlefield. So now David has taken a, um, a woman, a wife, 
of someone and taken her for his own. Now he covered that up by having her husband murdered and we would go, hmm, yeah, I think we're on to the next candidate, pass, um, let's find someone else. And I think we'd really go, really? You're a man after God's own heart. I sure hope that those things um, aren't on God's heart, and I sure hope that those things aren't what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. And so we'd go, really, David? Is that what it looks like to follow after um, the Lord? But I think I found, um, would I be the the key to success or the key of what God was looking for was this. It wasn't that David was perfect. It wasn't his spotless record. It wasn't his A-plus report card. It wasn't the fact of what he did for the nation of Israel and how he caused them to expand and to grow. It wasn't the fact that he gathered the supplies to rebuild the temple. It was David's willingness to admit that he had screwed up and he had messed up before the Lord. In Psalm 51, we find his response, and the written response of what happened to David when confronted with his sin. And so to catch up with that just a little bit, um, we know that David, at first, doesn't see the flaws and the things that he had done, that God has to send him a prophet in the man of Nathan. And Nathan um, wisely approaches the king, and he starts to tell a story about another group of people, and the sins of them. And David is outraged at the story. and says, how could you, a person take advantage of someone else like that? And how could a person do that? And Nathan points to him and says, David, that man is you. And so what David does next is our model and our response because sometimes the reality is, is, is that we are a lot more like David um, where we don't get it right, where we do mess up, where um, we walk outside of God's laws and commands and we break um, them And the reality is, just like last week we talked about there's hard stuff and there's difficult stuff and there's questions about how long, Um, the reality is is that we don't always get it right. But what we can get right is our response to those things. And so we look in Psalm 51 at David's response um, after Nathan has told David of his sins and and the Lord has convicted him. In verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore unto me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And so we see in the first part of these verses is that David doesn't do what most of us do when confronted with our sin. Let's be honest. Um, When someone comes and points out our sins or someone comes to, you know, or we're aware of our own sins, we very quickly... um, become the best defense attorneys possible in the U.S. We very quickly jump to defend ourselves. And so imagine being confronted like David, and you, and 
someone comes to you and says, you know what, I see some, I see some sin in your life, um, how do we respond? Notice what David doesn't do. David doesn't say, you know what, well, Bathsheba, she was on, why was she bathing up there? And she was just so beautiful and, you know, just looking at her and what, what was she doing? I, I couldn't help myself. I just did what um, I was naturally inclined to do. I call that one the, the blame, right? You put it on someone else. You make it someone else's fault. Well, they raised their voice first or you started yelling first or you did this or you did that as if that somehow justifies your action or your response. But notice that's not what David does. He doesn't point it to Bathsheba and say, you know what, if she wouldn't have been bathing there and if she wouldn't have been doing that, I would have never been tempted and never would have fallen into sin. And uh, so you know what, it's Bathsheba's fault. He doesn't do that. He could have also maybe looked to his position of power and said, God, you know what, it's really stressful being king. It's really stressful having to manage and to lead all of these people and they rebel and they sin. And you just don't understand, God, the pressure that I'm under. And, you know, and it just was because of that stress, I gave in to a moment of weakness, and I just was really tired, and I just wasn't thinking, um, you know, in the right mind. It's the excuse, right? But David doesn't do that. But how many of us, when something comes up, we have an excuse, or we have that quick thing that we can go to, but God, you know, you don't know what's going on in my life. I have a lot to manage. Things are stressful at my job, my family, and I just, you know, I'm sorry, God. And we quickly excuse um, our sin. You know, David could have went, you know, well, Bathsheba, she was just down there, and she'll actually be better with me, you know, who wouldn't enjoy this kingdom and who wouldn't enjoy being married to a king and having this position of power. You know what? I'm actually doing Bathsheba a favor, you know? She's getting a better life um, as if she somehow is trying to, or David would somehow try to justify what he had done. But no, we don't see David taking that route either. But how many of us can quickly justify or find a reason of, you know what? Um, it really wasn't that big of a deal, God, or I, I told a lie here because, you know, I wanted to protect my spouse. It would actually cause more hurt or damage if I didn't tell them the truth. And we try to ration our way out of it um, because, you know what, it's better to actually, you know, sin. But David doesn't do that again. Let's take a look. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David takes ownership and he owns what he has done. And he recognizes that standing before God that he has no footing or no ground to stand upon. Watch, he says in the first verse, he says, have mercy on me, O God. Is that the thing that David appeals to and the thing that David looks to to save him and to rescue him in this instance is the mercy of God. Because if he knew if he were to appeal to the justice of God, he stands guilty. And he stands condemned, and God would be right in acting accordingly in any way towards David. It says so again in verse 4. says, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. In a sense, God, David was saying, God, if you were to judge me right now, I'm guilty. I'm wrong. I messed up. And it wasn't Bathsheba's fault. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't the pressure of my job's fault. It was because of my desires and my flesh and I gave in to them and that is on me. In the same way, um, and sometimes that's hard for us and that's a heavy topic, right? The justice of God. But imagine being Uriah's family. Imagine um, you have just seen um, Uriah's wife being taken by a king and made David's wife and then Uriah was killed. If you were his family, I guarantee you, you would be demanding justice. 
You wouldn't say, you know what, I don't, deserve, I don't think David deserves you know, um, punishment or to go to jail. Imagine someone taking the life of one of your loved ones, and then they stood before the court, and you would say, there better be justice. They better pay. They better go to jail for this amount of time, and they better be granted life without parole. And we would demand justice. And God is right in doing so, and David knows that, and David's aware of that, that if he were to appeal to the justice of God, he would stand condemned, but he appeals to the mercy of God and to the grace of God, because he knows that is the only thing that is going to rescue him and save him and deliver him from this situation. So point number one is this, is that when you have screwed up and when you have messed up, own it. Don't point the fingers, don't shift the blame, don't try to ration it, or don't try to make it sound like it wasn't a sin. That's always my favorite, all that, well, you know, the Bible says this, well, you know, I don't know if it really means that there, or, you know, God just meant it for that time or that period of time, and we try to, like, weasel our way around it. No, when we have sinned and we have fallen short, stand there and say, you know what, it's on me. I've messed up, I've screwed up, and I'm going to own my mistakes. And two, appeal to the mercy of God and appeal to the grace of God. You see, there's some verses in the Bible that for some reason uh, make some of us uncomfortable. Um, but actually, before we get to that, is that David actually refers to his sins in three different words and uses three different ways to describe his sins. He says, blot out my transgressions. Transgressions simply means rebelling against God. This is God's law, this is God's standard, I know what it was, and I purposely chose to go a different direction. I know that it wasn't right to take a wife that wasn't mine, but I did it anyways. I know that God says that um, to do not murder, but I murdered Uriah anyways, and that's what transgressions are. I know what God says, I know what is right, and I've chosen to rebel and walk a different direction. And then he says, wash away all of my iniquity. Iniquity is just the ugliness and the results of David's sin. Now Uriah's family is out a son, a brother. Um, now Bathsheba is in conflict because, you know, what is going on? Because of the corruption of the king. And the iniquity is just the result and the ugliness of the things that we have done. And it says, and cleanse me from my sin. The word sin there um, is a popular term used, and it means to miss the mark. Imagine I had a bow and arrow, and I was shooting at a target. Um, God's desire is that we would hit bullseye all the time, 100% of the time. But sin in that term means is that we land somewhere else on the target or we miss the target completely. We have missed the mark that God intended for us to make. And some of us are quite content there. Well, you know, I got an eight, or at least I, at least I hit the target. But God's desire for you is the very best, and he wants you to hit the bullseye, and he wants you to get it right all of the time. And David knows that. And David knows that he has missed the mark. And so it's hard for us sometimes to admit that we don't always get it right. But I would hope in reality we recognize that sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we say things that maybe we shouldn't say. Sometimes maybe they're not even just sins of commission, but they're sins of omission. Maybe we withhold love where we are supposed to give love. Maybe we withhold forgiveness where we are supposed to forgive. Maybe we do not share the gospel when God is calling us to reach out and share the gospel with someone. But the truth is, is that we just don't always get it right. And there's verses that sometimes scare us, but I think it actually defines what, in reality what is going on. How about Jeremiah 17:9? For the heart is deceptive and wicked above all. Or Romans 3:23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Can we admit today that sometimes that we don't always get it right? It doesn't matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, whether it's been 30 years, whether you're a pastor, whether you're an elder, or whether you um, are a worship leader, is that sometimes we screw up and we don't get it right and we all fall short of the glory of God. And I'm no better. David wasn't new to his position at this point. It wasn't like David was still a young boy just learning how to walk the ropes. No, David had been in power. He had, you know, had been leading an army, and he had ruled for quite a amount of time when he did this. But David appeals to the mercy of God, and he recognizes and he owns what he has done. And if we read on, that David is keenly aware of what God desires and what God wants. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. And so we read that and we go, wait a second. <laughs> pretty sure he sinned against Bathsheba. I'm pretty sure he sinned against Uriah. I'm pretty sure he sinned in front of an entire nation of people. But what the point David is making is this, is that he knows that he stands guilty before God and that if he were to never break God's law or he were never to sin before God, then he also would have never committed those sins against the people that he did. And he never would have caused the pain and the destruction and the hurt that he caused in other people's life if he didn't, hadn't commit, broken God's laws and God's commands. It goes on to say, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And so David's aware that God here is not just after behavior modification. He's not here just to get us to, you know, do what is right. He's after having us have the right heart. We find that Jesus teaches this in the New Testament. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say that even if you hate your brother or sister, you have committed murder in your heart. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that even if you have lust for another person, you have committed adultery in your heart. And David is aware here that God is not just after changing the outward behavior or modifying that, but he's after the heart, and he's after making the heart clean and redeeming the heart and making the heart new. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, but I tell you to turn the other cheek. And so I want to put a little disclaimer here is that the actions, the words, the thoughts, and the things that happen against you by no means excuse you from your behavior, your actions, and your words towards another. Because Jesus says, it's not eye for an eye. You were to turn the other cheek. So you can't blame or shift the responsibility of your sin and say, well, they did this or they did that. No, you'll stand one day before the Lord responsible for your own actions despite what someone else may have done. And so God here is not just after moral actions or good behaviors. He's after changing what is in the hearts of men. And David's aware of this. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And so David here recognizes that it's more than just his outer, outer garments that are dirty. It's more than just his clothes that are dirty where he just needs to change his outfit and uh, he will be clean. He knows that the cleansing has to come internally. It has to come from a cleansing of the heart. That something has to change inside of him or else he will continue to do the same things that he did before. But a lot of us, we walk in that where it's like, well, we don't want to get caught or we don't want to be embarrassed by our sins, so we quickly recognize it and we quickly can make an outfit change, so to speak, and we can dress it up another way and we can hide it and we can stuff it so that way people don't know what's going on. But the truth is, is that when the inside is dirty, what happens is it eventually starts to bleed and find its way out in another form and another avenue. And then all we're left doing is 
You know what, just change, doing another outfit change. But God here is after ch- changing and cleansing the hearts on what's on the inside. That's why David says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He's asking God to create something new. He's asking God to do something new in his own heart. And so the word here um, that I want us to, to learn and to not fear and to not be afraid of is Repentance. Everyone repeat after me, repentance. Repentance is a word that unfortunately I think that we associate with um, negativity or we think that it's bad or repressive and we somehow fear repentance like it's some type of grimy word that that we want to avoid. But the heart of today's message is that we would repent well and that we would walk in repentance and that we would walk rightly before God so that just as She's saying that we could be made clean. And so repentance isn't a dirty word. It's a word of the Lord. And John the Baptist says this, when I have come, or I have come, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So John the Baptist comes preaching a message of repentance. Repentance meaning turning from the ways of which you formerly walked, turning from your carnal mind, your sinful desires, and walking now in the ways of Jesus. Jesus himself comes and says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. He repeats the message of John the Baptist. And then he goes on to say, I have not come for the healthy and I have not come for the whole, but I have, called to come, I have come to call sinners to repentance. Repentance is at the heart of Jesus. He said, I've not come for those that are well. I've come to take those that have sinned, that have transgressed, that have walked the other way, that have broken my laws, that have broken my commands, that are dead in their sins and their trespasses. I have called to call, come to call them to Repentance. We find it again when he's teaching his disciples how to pray. We like certain parts of that prayer. Lord, um, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We love that part of it. Lord, give us today our daily bread. But what else does he teach his disciples to pray? Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us of our sins. And so just because Jesus has come and just because his blood is poured out on the cross, Jesus is saying that you... Still part of our daily life, just like we need our daily bread, just like we need his will to come on earth as it is in heaven, we need to be forgiven of our trespasses. And so repentance is not something to be afraid of. It's not something to fear. It's an opportunity, and there's some benefits to repentance, and I want to share those benefits with you guys this morning. Is that repentance actually allows you the opportunity and the chance to see the forgiveness, the mercy, and the grace of God. You see, repentance allows us to confront the things that have gone on in our lives and the things that we've gotten wrong and our mess-ups and our screw-ups and our sin, and it allows us to find forgiveness for those things. An author said this, is that when we deal greatly with our sin and we handle our sin greatly, God deals gently with us. But when we fail to handle our sin greatly and we fail to to take care of it and we fail to handle it seriously, then our sin very quickly deals with us. And so David here is crying out to the Lord, have mercy on me, O God, blot out my transgressions, wash me, forgive me, cleanse me. And do you know what it says in 1 Samuel? It says the Lord looked at David and it says that he passed over his sins. David's sins were forgiven because David responded and said, you know what, I've been wrong. I screwed up. I messed up. And what does God do? Forgives him. 
1 John 1, 9, if we, are faith, or if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. He doesn't up there like, well, you know what? That was a good apology. Um, you know what? I'm going to consider forgiving you. You know what, Daryl? If you say that prayer five more times, then, you know, I'll forgive you. Um, it says he is faithful and just to forgive you. So that if you acknowledge where you've screwed up, where you have messed up, where you have caused hurt and pain, and if you acknowledge them and you confess them, it says that he is faithful and just to forgive them. It's a promise that you can stand upon. It's the promise that assures us that when I've screwed up for the thousandth time or I've done the same sin over and over again, I can still come before the Lord and that he will forgive me of my sins. And so repentance is that. Repentance is that I used to walk this way and this is the way that I walked and Jesus says, halt, now turn this way. Walk this way and I'm gonna produce an inward change in you and you're gonna find my grace, you're gonna find my mercy and you're gonna find my forgiveness in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your sins. And so repentance isn't a bad thing. It gives us the opportunity to be cleansed from the things that have made us dirty. David knows this. Cleanse me, and I will be clean. He knows the mercy and the grace of God. He knows that the only thing that can make him clean in that instance is the mercy of God. And he knows that if you wash me, I will be whiter than snow. So don't be afraid to call your sin what it is. Don't be afraid to admit where you're wrong. And don't be afraid to... Deal with it, because when you do, you find the grace and the forgiveness of the Lord. And it's in those moments where your life starts to change. And so that's benefit number one. You learn his grace and his forgiveness. Benefit number two is that the way that you used to walk, God sets you free and you no longer walk. How about the woman at the well who had jumped from husband to husband, man to man, trying to find life, and she encounters Jesus? And then what's her life become? She starts telling people about Jesus. She starts to spread and tell them about this man that knew everything about her life and that set her free from her previous lifestyle. How about Zacchaeus, a sinner and a tax collector and a thief, um, known for robbing the people, and then Jesus comes to sit and have dinner with him. And what does Zacchaeus say? He says, Lord, I'm sorry. I'll repay them four times what I have stolen from them. And so over here you have where Zacchaeus walked in his flesh, where he walked in his sin, where he was stealing and he enjoyed it and he didn't think anything about it and then he encounters Jesus and now he's headed a completely different direction. It's the stories of Chuck Colson who spent their life as a political aide, corrupt, crime, lying, known, for, known as the bull, knowing to be able to run over people and to make what he wanted being passed into laws, laws. Um, he worked for, if any of you don't know who Chuck Colson is, he was Richard Nixon's top political aide um, and was basically anything that Nixon did that was corrupt, um, Chuck Colson was the man to walk it out. Eventually so much so that he ended up in prison for the things that he had done. Someone handed him a C.S. Lewis book. He read it, gave his life to the Lord, and then led a lifestyle of ministry with prison reform, prison ministry that still exists today even though he has been passed for many years. That's what repentance is. It allows you to bear fruit from the way that you once walked, you no longer walk, and now God sets you free and sets you on a different path. And see, and that happens because God, repentance is not just an outward behavior change. It's a change of the heart where God changes my desires. He changes what I long for, and he makes me new. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me is that God creates something new and he does something different in your life. And the things that kept you bound and the things that kept you chained and where you've walked in guilt and condemnation and the things that you couldn't be free of, Jesus sets you free of. 
through repentance, is that when we acknowledge what we've done and we acknowledge that those things have kept us shackled and chained and in bondage, and we say, Lord, I can't do anything about this. Lord, wash me in your mercy. Cleanse me from my sin. Make me white as snow. He does. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. And so repentance is your way of being set free from the things that have kept you bound and the sins that have afflicted you and the things that have gone on year after year, time after time. As repentance allows you to walk free of those things and to find freedom in those things. But our temptation and our desire is sometimes to very quickly hide our sin, to cover it up, to not let anyone else know it, and to make sure that we keep it under wraps because, you know, what if someone else finds out or what if we have to face the truth about ourselves? It's one of the hardest things to do is acknowledge that, you know, we might get some things wrong. But listen, guys, that's not a fruit of the Lord. That's a fruit of the fall. What's the first thing that Adam and Eve did? They ran and they hid from the Lord. They failed to acknowledge that they had disobeyed God, and the first thing that they did was run and hide from the Lord. And so when we want to hide our sins and we want to cover it up, that's not a fruit of the Lord, that's a fruit of the fall. And then what happens? Lord, this woman that you gave me, Adam very quickly starts to pass the blame, pass the buck, and try to pass responsibility and to say, you know what, this isn't my fault, this is her fault. If she wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have done this. Who knows? It's not a question that can be answered, but I wonder what God's response would have been if Adam and Eve just would have said, you know what, God, we've transgressed your ways. We ate, of the, of the, ugh, we ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we shouldn't have done that, God, and we're sorry. But we're very quick to do the same things that Adam and Eve done. You know, um, hide from our sin, cover it up, mask it somehow, and we're afraid. But the truth is, guys, is that if you'll acknowledge what you've done and you'll confess your sin and you'll admit before God that you've gotten it wrong and you have owned it, you'll find the grace and the mercy of God and you'll find his forgiveness and you'll find his compassion and he'll pour out his love upon you. I have a quote here that I want to read. It says, what's actually true is that when I come to the Lord after I've blown it, I've only one argument to make. It's not the argument of the difficulty of the environment that I'm in. It's not the argument of the difficult people I'm near. It's not the argument of good intentions that thwarted in some way. No, I have only one argument. It's right here in the first verse of Psalm 51 as David confesses his sin with Bathsheba. I come to the Lord with only one appeal. His mercy. I have no other defense. I have no other standing. I have no other hope. I can't escape the reality of my biggest problem, me. So I appeal to the one thing in life that's sure and will never fail. I appeal to the one thing that guaranteed not only my acceptance with God, but the hope of new beginnings and fresh starts. I appeal on the basis of the greatest gift I ever have or will ever be given. I leave the courtroom of my own defense. I come out of hiding and I admit who I am, but I'm not afraid because I've been personally and eternally blessed because of what Jesus has done, and God looks on me with mercy. It's my only appeal. It's the source of my hope. It's my life. Mercy, mercy me. I'll admit in my own life that... um, I'm a sinner, 
And one of the sins and one of the things that I often wrestled with um, in my younger life was anger. (laughs) I very would quickly explode if some things did not go my way or if they were outside of my control or people weren't acting or behaving in a way that I wanted them to. Anger was my quick go-to. That was my defense mechanism because then I could get you to do what I wanted you to do by using my feelings, my emotions to manipulate them. So we were going through marriage counseling and... I could stand here today and tell you that that was learned behavior, that it was, you know, that I experienced that in my own home life, and I picked that up from my family members and all of that, but the truth was, I still wrestled with it, and I still dealt with it, and it was mine. And so I wanted to, I was in marriage counseling, and obviously, I wanted to marry Mel, um, and the guy that was doing our counseling says, you know what, I'm not going to marry you until you go and get some counseling for your anger. Now... (laughs) When you have anger problems, you get angry that someone tells you that you have anger problems and need counseling, all right? So my first response is, this guy's a fool. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I got it controlled. I got it managed, and it's really not that bad. But I really loved Mel, and I really wanted to marry Mel, so I I suffered my pride and said, you know what? I'll show up to counseling. I'll go to one session, and I'll do this, and we'll call this quits ends, and I'll say that I did what I needed to do so that way I could marry my wife. But then I sat there in counseling and I realized very quickly, I was like, oh, I do have anger problems. And oh, this is causing hurt and pain for the people around me. And oh, this isn't fair to head into marriage and to handle issues and problems that that way. And so I was able to lay those things before the Lord and I was able to present them and say, Lord, this is me. This is who I am. I am flawed. I am broken. I am a mess. and I was able to be set free. I was able to learn another way. I was able to learn how to walk out my issues and what to do when things were outside of my control and how to, um, and obviously we have our fights like any married couple, but I would think that you know God set me free of that and he gave me something that wouldn't have happened if someone wouldn't have confronted my sin and I wasn't able to lay it down before the Lord. So don't be afraid. Don't live in fear of what others may think. Don't live in fear that, you know, what if my spouse finds out or what um, if they don't know this about me or what if other people, what if I'm in a position and other people will think less of me? It's not about that, guys. It's about coming before the Lord and being set free and watching him wash you and to make you clean so that way he can set you on a new path, that he can create a new spirit and renew unto you the joy of your salvation. Psalm 51 at the very end, it's one of my favorite verses to ever share with teenagers when they're broken about their sin and they think the world's going to end and that God's going to hate them forever and that they're never going to be free of this. I quote this verse often, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The best place to be is broken over our transgressions, broken over our iniquity. Because it's those moments where we can't do anything else but appeal to the mercy of God that he says that I will not despise you and I will take the shattered pieces and I will make you whole again and I will start a new thing in your life and I will meet you there and I will pour out my grace and I will show you my compassion and you will know my forgiveness. So don't be afraid of the things that you're wrestling with. Don't be afraid to be broken. Don't think that it makes you weak. Don't think that, no, it's the strongest position to be in, knelt before the Lord and broken over the things.
because it's in those moments that he can take you and use you and mold you and mend you and build things in your life that you could never do on your own. We know that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12.9 that he wrestled with a thorn in the flesh. I don't know what the thorn is, but I imagine it was a sin issue that Paul desperately wished that God would free him of or heal him of or deliver him from. But he says, you know what? I've learned to thank God for my weakness because it is in my weakness that I am made strong. And so I don't know where you're at today. I won't. I have enough sin in my own life and enough issues in my own life to deal with that I don't know what's going on in your lives. But I know that we wrestle with things. I know that we deal with things. I know that the reality is, whether we like it or not or we want to confront it or not, that we don't always get it right. That we hurt people with our actions, our thoughts, and our words. And that we are a fallen people. And that we are people in desperate need of a Savior and forgiveness and mercy and grace. And so whether you're sitting here and you've wrestled with the same sin for 40 years and you've prayed to God that he would forgive you a thousand times, I would encourage you today, today's the day to lay it down before the altar again and repent and to receive his forgiveness for the one thousandth and first time. Maybe you've never confessed your sin. Maybe it's been so dark and hidden and secret that you just can't let it out and you've wrestled with it and you have guilt and you have shame and it continues to beat you up and it continues to keep you shackled and in the darkness, today's the day that I want you to walk free of that by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that you find your forgiveness for that and that you don't have to wrestle with that and you have to deal with that. You can lay it before the altar of the Lord and find his forgiveness because Jesus paid for your sins. At first, you sound, it sounds like God is letting David off the hook when he says he just passes over David's sin. God, how is that justice? How's that justice for Uriah's family and the people that witnessed what David just did that you would just pass that over and ignore that? But we find our answer in Romans 3, 25 and 26. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus was able, or God was able to pass over David's sin because he knew that he would handle them justly in the death of his son, Jesus. So that Jesus not only paid from the sins before, but he's paying the sins now and our sins going forward. And so that your sins are forgiven. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And Christ would want you to know his forgiveness. He would want you to know that there is nothing, I love that part of the song, there is nothing too dirty that he can't make worthy. If it is, we might as well throw out the whole gospel. Paul was a murderer. David was a murderer and an adulterer. adulterer and he found the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God. And so there's nothing that you have done that is beyond God's forgiveness. There's not a hole that you can dig that Christ is still not at the bottom of and that he can cover. Max Okada uses an illustration to demonstrate the grace and the mercy of God is this. Is that, um, I'll use Merv. Merv, if you were to, uh, all right, you know, it's, very, it's only fitting, you're here, all right? But if Merv were to be walking in the parking lot and he were to fall in a hole, and it was a six-foot hole, um, and just about 
above his head, and I were to come along, and I were to help Merv out, and I were just to give him a hand and lift him out, Merv would probably say, you know what, thanks, I appreciate the hand, um, that's great. But he's probably not ready to award me um, any plaques or any medals or call the radio stations and say about this great rescue that I've just done for Merv. Because if left in the six-foot hole and no one else was around, I'm pretty sure that Merv could have found his own way out. Was it easier for me to help him? Yeah, but really not necessary. If it was desperate, he could have climbed out of that six-foot hole all by himself. But if I were to stumble across Merv and he was 200 feet down and nothing but mud and it was raining and thunderstorming and the mud was starting to pile up and it was just a slippery slope and he couldn't climb out and he couldn't reach the top of his own ability and I came along and I threw a rope down and I was able to pull him out and Merv was exhausted from trying and the only thing that Merv made out of the hole was all my own strength and my own power and because I lifted him out of that hole, Merv would probably be a lot more thankful that I saved his life. He might call the radio station. He might try to, you know get me some praise for what I had done. Why? Because the hole that I saved him from and the thing that I rescued him from um, was in danger of taking his life and he, in his own ability, his own strength, wasn't able to get out on his own. But sometimes we like to think of our sin as that little, like, six-foot thing that we can escape, that we can manage. I can handle it. I can deal with this on my own. I got this. I don't need no help. I can deliver myself from But the reality is we can't rescue ourselves from our sin. Our sin leaves us helpless and defenseless at the bottom of a pit that we cannot reach to on our own power and our own strength. And the reason that we're able to be delivered and to rescue is because of the grace and the mercy of God of what he did on that cross. And that's my strength and that's my hope and that's what I build my life upon. So if I could have the whole worship team uh, come forward. We're going to close in a song that's going to allow us a chance. Why do we have a song at the end of a sermon? It allows us a chance to respond to the things of God and what he's moving in our hearts. And I pray today that you would respond in your own way. I can't make you repent. I can't make you confess sin. I can't make you acknowledge your shortcomings and your flaws. I can only encourage you that if you do so today, you'll be met with the forgiveness and the grace of a loving, compassionate, and gracious God. And if you lay those things before him, the things that have afflicted you and the things that have kept you bound, he will set you free of today. So please, today, don't be afraid. Maybe you need to make amends with a family member, a spouse. Maybe your forgiveness needs to be between you and another. The only thing I ask today is that if the Lord's moving and the Lord's convicting, deal with it today. We all know that We hit the car, we hit home, and we'll just put it off for another time. I'll wait till I hear the next sermon on forgiveness, or I'll wait till the next issue or the next thing flares up, and then I will deal with it. Don't do that. Be set free today. Be made clean today. Be dressed in his righteousness. If you see yourself as dirty, as flawed, as broken, and undeserving of the grace of God, you're the perfect candidate to be washed and to be made clean and to be called into his kingdom and into his purposes. So I'm going to ask that you would stand with us and that as you need to respond, respond. Maybe it's here at the altar. Maybe it's praying with someone. Maybe it's confessing to another person in this room. But don't view repentance as a bad thing or an evil thing. Look at it as an opportunity to meet and encounter the grace of God. 
Someone said that repentance starts hard, the course is bitter, but the ending is joy. Because in the end of that road, you find a new creation, one that has been made new in Christ. And so don't be afraid to walk it today. So.